Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox, I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 79 of This Week in FCPA for the week ending December 8th, 2017, the Fire and Ice Edition. This week, Jay and I return for a wide-ranging discussion of some of the week's top compliance and ethics-related stories, including the uh, sentencing of former VW engineer Oliver Schmidt to seven years in jail for his role in the VW emission testing scandal, UK Financial Regulatory Councils proposing changes to its governance code in the areas of corporate culture, diversity, and sustainable growth. We take a look at a very interesting situation where Transparency International criticized uh, a company for using its Corruption Perception Index and its compliance program. Very odd. We review a story about Caterpillar uh, cheating its customers, tossing evidence into the ocean to hide it in its rail car repair subsidiary. We consider a question asked by Matthew Stevenson, is it time to amend U.S. domestic bribery statutes in light of the Supreme Court decision in McDonald's, uh, based upon a blog post he had in the Global Anti-Corruption blog. Uh, Jay tells us about uh, a visit with Andy Hinton, CCL at Global, and we highlight his podcast with Adam Turtletob on compliance perspectives. We review 10 ways to get involved with the SEC, CE, an article by Roy Snell and Christy Grant Hart. We take a look at three very large whistleblower awards uh, given out under the SEC Whistleblowers Program over the past week. And finally, we conclude with a discussion of my December edition of my One Month to a More Effective Compliance Program podcast series. In December, I'm taking a look at written standards in a best practices compliance program. This is Tom Fox. Thank you for listening to This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, back for another episode of This Week in FCPA, episode 79 for the week ending December 8th, 2017, the Fire and Ice Edition. As always, I'm joined by Mr. Monitors, Jay Rosen, coming to us from smoky and gritty, and one might even say apocalyptic Los Angeles, California. Jay, tell us that you're safe. We are safe. Uh, unfortunately, and the girls have been out of school for three out of five days this week, so that's uh, been driving Mrs. Monitors crazy. And um, I'm actually right up in San Francisco. I shot in last night uh, for uh, a couple of events, but I have been keeping tabs on all the Rosen ladies, and they're doing fine. Well, good, good. So, Jay, uh, after last week, I would say uh, a little, perhaps a few, uh, a little bit less on the FCPA front uh, this week. Nevertheless, lots of things in the greater corporate, excuse me, uh, compliance, corporate compliance world. So why don't we hop right into it with um, what I thought was just a stunning sentencing of uh, former VW engineer Oliver Schmidt to seven years in uh, prison for his role in the VW um emissions testing scandal, he was not an engineer who was involved in the actual uh, execution of the scandal. He was uh, a VW representative and unfortunately had the name uh, or title of compliance professional, but he dealt with the U.S. regulators, and he was part of the conspiracy to uh, deceive really just a lie to U.S. regulators about um, VW's emission testing program, and um, that's uh, <clears throat> the equivalent to the longest FCPA fine, excuse me, uh, uh, sentencing we've had. He was also 
assessed a criminal penalty of $400,000 and, you know, good luck ever paying that off. He's um, going to be deported uh, when his sentence is completed in the United States, although, frankly, I, w- I would not be surprised if he's not deported to Germany earlier. Um, he was he's a German citizen. He spent some amount of time working for Volkswagen in the United States, and then he made the incredibly stupid decision last year to vacation at Walt Disney World from uh, flying his family from Germany, and he was literally arrested at the uh, Miami airport as he was getting ready to depart his uh, family holiday. So uh, if you subject yourself to uh, physical jurisdiction, um, you are certainly subject to being arrested, and Mr. Schmidt was arrested. So um, the uh, it was really interesting. I thought a couple of things. One was the sentence, and we had a prior VW representative sentenced to four years, and I think that's what Schmidt was really expecting. Also, Schmidt had actually cooperated giving voluntary statements to the Department of Justice prior to the time he was arrested. Uh, he made those statements in Europe. Uh, nevertheless, uh, we did have some cooperation, so I think people were a little bit surprised when he was arrested. And really, just the length of the sentence uh, demonstrates that the court was uh, very offended by his um, actions in, in lying to U.S. regulators. He, of course, claimed he was instructed to do so by VW management, Uh, He either didn't put forward evidence of that or was not persuasive to the court. And um, it sends a, I think, very clear signal uh, from both uh, the Department of Justice indicating that they will vigorously prosecute individuals who violate the law, but also the courts. And when you subject yourself to sentencing uh, in front of a judge, you you do that. You subject it. And if the court says, uh, no, it's not the four years you think you've agreed on, it's seven years because I find your conduct so offensive under U.S. law, that's – that's what you uh, potentially are looking at. So uh, very interesting development. We've had, I think, four other VW executives have been indicted. Uh, they're German citizens living in Germany. They have not been extradited, nor do I expect them to be extradited to the United States, subject, of course, to their taking a holiday in Disney World. Uh, we've had <laughs> one Italian uh, who worked for Volkswagen has been indicted, and uh, Italy does. Excuse me, indicted. Italy does extradite to the United States, so he may actually uh, stand trial here. Uh, German uh, courts are moving at a laborious pace on this investigation. Um, I would note that, uh, uh, sort of unrelated to this, but tied certainly to Volkswagen, is Bill Coffin, the editor in chief at Compliance Week, has spent a fair amount of time interviewing high-level Volkswagen personnel around compliance, and he's going to come out with a series in Compliance Week on this, uh, on their compliance response to the admission testing scandal. So I think it'll be a nice supplement for those who are interested in the case. Uh, Once again, it will be from the compliance perspective, not really from the prosecutorial or enforcement perspective. So lots to talk about, lots still going on. And from my conversations with Bill, I know that he's got a lot to talk about on Volkswagen's compliance response to the scandal. So, um, like I said, just lots of information uh, about Volkswagen in the news recently. Great. I mean, uh, it's just, uh, I remember the first time when he had taken the trip to Disneyland and you're just uh, remarking at at how it was such a bad decision. So I was going to add that in, but you beat me to it. Um, Next up, we have something from the UK's Financial Regulatory Council, and they are proposing changes to the uh, 
governance code. Uh, what do we know about that, Tom? So the UK regulatory, excuse me, Financial Regulatory Council deals with banks and financial institutions in the United Kingdom, what we would call regulated industries here in the United States. And they have uh, indicated they want some changes in uh, code of conduct and corporate governance um, from these uh, entities. And they have specified changes in the codes around corporate culture, diversity, and sustainable long-term growth. They have said that, let me get this right, they're seeking to shift the reporting on corporate governance from a comply or explain mode, which they feel is closer to a tick-the-box exercise, to one that focuses on applying the principles of the code to the organization and then explain how it's done so that it's easy for stakeholders to understand. They've come up with five different sections that I think are very interesting and something that we may need to unpack um, uh, ourselves here in the United States around our approaches to code of conducts. But the five separate separate sections are, number one, leadership and purpose. Number two, division of responsibilities within the organization. Three, succession and evaluation. Four, audit, risk, and internal controls. And then five, payment or what they call our remuneration. And these principles of governance uh, covering the code are aimed to ensure board effectiveness and to emphasize a corporate purpose that really transcends the bottom line. Another interesting point is that they are specifically requiring input from a variety of stakeholders that you and I, having worked for U.S. public companies, might find uh, broader than simply the shareholders of the company, so that um, they want you to talk to your employees. They want you to talk to your third parties. And then the one I found the most interesting, they want you to talk to uh, outsourced workers, uh, recognizing in the gig economy, outsourcing of your workforce is, is, the, is a new reality. It's not the new reality. But um, it uh, also requires strengthening of diversity on boards, uh, not only gender balance, but perhaps age balance as well. Uh, and uh, senior management to have that type of balance. So it's a very comprehensive uh, reevaluation of what should go into corporate governance, what should be in a code of conduct, and how that all of that should be developed. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how this how this plays out in the uh, United Kingdom. This is just a proposal at this point, and the uh, consultation with uh, industry formal consultation allowing comments is open until the end of February. But lots to to think about, and, and really, when when you and I talk about the types of things that uh, Affiliated Monitors does in cultural assessment, in how they uh, will try to unpack the company's values, um, Code of Conduct, I don't think, is really one of the, the top ways we do that. And this, I think, uh, this proposed code reform really may get us to focus on the entire um, uh, holistic approach with uh, your, uh, obviously your values uh, flowing from your code, but enshrining more input from the disparate stakeholders of your company up to your code and then having those values cascade down and, and then where people like you and myself or and affiliated monitors might then go in and try to assess, is our culture really tying itself to what we say it is in the code of conduct. So um, I really thought there was a lot in here and a lot for us to think about both at the very 30,000 foot level, but 
I really did think about it in terms of, you know, how would we assess this? How would it play out and how do we operationalize this? So an interesting uh, development in the United Kingdom. Yeah, I think uh, it really does provide, uh, you know, information for uh, a a very thoughtful approach to this. Um, In the past, a lot of people or a lot of companies have had the issue where we've always talked about that, you know, that paper code of conduct and that check the box approach and going at this more from a 360 perspective. Um, it's really not only important that there is a robust code of conduct and it uh, provides a roadmap for what you should be doing as a corporation, but to your point, Tom, we if we look at this holistically and from all the different um, people who are touched by the code, I think it really does give a, a better view into how those corporate values uh, interact with the rest of the business community. So next up, we had a, a really interesting article, Jay, uh, about Transparency International. And I think probably almost everyone in the compliance community is aware of Transparency International and certainly their annual Corruption Perception Index. But they have come out and criticized uh, at least how one company is using it and perhaps how others are. You want to tell us about that? Yeah. So this is something we've uh, picked up from Henry Cutter over at the Wall Street Journal and the uh, specific risk and compliance journal uh, section. And uh, basically, uh, as you said, TI, Transparency International, uh, they provide this index. And traditionally, people have used it as an opportunity to maybe look at red flags. So if you are in a particularly uh, low-ranking uh area such as Brazil or Russia or, uh, you know, somewhere in Africa, you should, as a uh, company, if you're going to do business there, you should do uh, heightened due diligence. And the issue at uh, hand here is that the German software company, SAP, has said that they're choosing to use the TI index as a reason not to do business or not to work with certain people. So this uh, has really kind of... uh, raise the ire of TI because it seems to be going counter towards uh, why they've developed the index, that they feel the index is developed to uh, (coughs) shine a light on areas that might need more attention, whereas uh, SAP is using it for a much different purpose. Uh, So I don't really know if this is something that you have have either, uh, you know, you've, you've thought about in your role roles as a service provider, but uh, as far back as 2007, uh, when I was employed at ABLE, uh, we used the TICPI as a, as, a, as a touch point, as a guidepost, and um, I don't think we said we wouldn't do business uh, specifically, um, but now that I think about it, you know, we may have even done that. So I think this has been going on for quite some time, and this is... Um, is as well known a standard within the compliance uh, space as any other standard. I think there are others that are now viewed as more comprehensive because they have more data points. But the TI CPI is, is certainly the most senior, certainly the most recognized. And for them to put out a standard and then criticize people who choose to use that standard, I really found that a bit odd. 
Um, now, the use of the standard, you could criticize that as harsh. You know, you could perhaps make other commentary, but, um, you know, if you're going to put out a standard, people are going to use it. And if, they, and if a company chooses to use it in a very cons- with a very conservative approach because of their own unique facts and circumstances, um, it's certainly a valid way uh, to use the standard. Um, so I'm a little bit confused by that. It, have you really thought about it kind of in, in those terms? Or I, I, I guess I should ask, have you used that in any of the places you've worked or, or worked with clients based on that? Um, I would say we do more of the uh, using it as a data point. And, you know, as, as I said earlier, if we are um, training in a region that has, uh, you know, uh, has more of a heightened uh, potential for corruption, um, we're going to specifically gear the training that way. So um, when I was out earlier this year and doing some training in Mexico, we, of course, were very highly attuned to the CPI index number there, and we appropriately, uh, you know, made additions to the uh, to what we were training on to address that. So I think uh, I, I support your contention, Tom, that if they've uh, – gone to the trouble of not only producing the index, but putting it out there as a guidepost um, for corporations to follow. I think each corporation, as you said, is going to have their own individual appetite for the amount of risk. And nobody's saying that I need to go, uh, you know, sell my wares in Russia or Equatorial Guinea. So uh, I, I don't think TI can dictate how people use their data. Uh, especially when it's out there publicly available for free. So, uh, Jay, we we had a really um, interesting fraud case. Uh, I wouldn't say it's corruption and, and certainly not bribery, but I think it did spill over to the area of fraud invo- involving Caterpillar. And Caterpillars just seem to have, a, have had a run of uh, at least allegations of fraudulent activities where uh, this was a situation where th- – uh, Caterpillar unit was um, tasked with repairing rail cars at the, I believe, long um, in um, Southern California where they have the big port. And um, Long Beach. Long Beach. Thank you very much. And um, the Caterpillar unit there admitted it had cheated customers by performing unnecessary repairs to rail cars. And uh, this was the part that I think got everybody's interest, which actually led to the conviction was uh, they actually destroyed parts on rail cars to claim that they needed repair. And then, um, too bad we don't have a snare drum and drum roll, they dump those parts into Long Beach Harbor, which, of course, violated the Clean Harbor Act. Um, so, and indeed there was a whistleblower report on the dumping. So the, uh, 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 us, um, coast guard actually sent divers and they found, uh, the parts in uh, long beach Harbor. So we had, uh, cheating customers by performing unnecessary repairs, dumping brake shoes and other parts into the ocean to, um, hide it, uh, the uh, employees said they were encouraged, quote, end quote, to do so by supervisors so that they can increase revenue. And um, then, of course, the whistleblower 
uh, made the uh, report, and the uh, uh, they sent out divers uh, working for, actually for the port police uh, who found the parts on the ocean floor. Uh, all of this conduct occurred back in 08 and 09, and uh, apparently it was quite a complex case because it took, uh, I guess that's nine years to come uh, to resolution um, uh, through this uh, plea agreement. Caterpillar disclosed in 2013 that it was a subject of a criminal investigation for uh, improper, unnecessary inspections and repairs. This, of course, is in addition to the separate criminal probe where federal agents uh, raided the former headquarters of uh, Caterpillar in Peoria, Illinois, in March of this year regarding a tax reduction plan. So um, lots of going things going on with Caterpillar, but the... Um, you know, the number of corporate scandals, Jay, we see where they're just cheating. And it's, you know, in, in following Manon or Mammon or the almighty dollar. Um, I don't quite know or understand why this is so pervasive. If it's more pervasive now, if it's just more publicity about it now. But uh, having supervisors encourage employees to actually break customers' parts so that they uh, will need repair. Uh, this is in addition to making unneeded repairs for parts that didn't need them or damaging parts uh, in some way rather than actually ripping them off uh, rail cars. You know, it's pretty serious. Uh, I think everyone would recognize that's unethical. And uh, so um, kind of wonder uh, who was watching this unit. Yeah, I mean, and if you just look at what we've talked about in the last 10 minutes, we have somebody at Volkswagen saying that management instructed them to cheat on the, um, you know, on, on the admissions. And now you've got these workers at a unit of Caterpillar saying management uh, asked them to, uh, you know, fake uh <coughs> fake problems with machinery to correct them. So it seems that there's uh, a lot of this, uh, this force coming down from management. And then if you want to, uh, you know, expand that even greater into something like, you know, our good friend Wells Fargo keeps popping up in the news because there's more and more things that uh, they are being uh, asking their workforce to do in, uh, in chasing the old mighty dollars. So uh, interesting stuff. Uh, next up on our list, uh, we have our good friend, Matthew Stevenson, and he's wondering if it's time to amend the U.S. bribery statute. So what what's on Matthew's mind? So first, let me say, if you don't read the Global Anti-Corruption blog, you need to, and you need to re read it every day, or at least uh, take the, the headlines and read what's interesting, because it's one of the most thoughtful blogs by a law professor out there. He really gets into policy arguments. Um, my favorite are actually when he and he goes into a kind of an open discussion with himself in writing, where he debates certain points, uh, pro and con, but it's a great policy um, blog, uh, and this one in, uh, Professor Stevenson, uh, really asks questions around, uh, will there ever be another, uh, domestic, uh, bribery conviction, uh, under U.S. domestic law based upon the McDonald case, who of course was the governor of, um, 
Virginia, who was a recipient of over $150,000 worth of gifts and services, uh, but that was determined not to be for a specific uh, action so that there was no quid pro quo. We recently had the uh, uh, hung jury in, in uh, Senator Robert Menendez's case. We had a couple of um, verdicts overturned as a result of the um, – McDonald decision uh, in New York, legislatures Dean Skelos and uh, Sheldon uh, Silver, and then, of course, um, uh, the uh, William Jefferson, uh, former U.S. Congressman's verdict was overturned. These were not overturned on the substance, on the jury instructions. Uh, they may be retried. They may not be. It's unclear what the Department of Justice is going to do. And so Professor Stevenson asks uh, what we can do at this point. He gives some suggestions on revising uh, language on domestic uh, anti-corruption statutes, recognizing, of course, the constitutional right to petition your representatives for redress. Uh, I can't remember what article, but it's right there in the Constitution. So he wants to look at uh, interpretation of statutory language and perhaps revise statutes uh, along those lines. Uh, he recognizes the difficulty in this Congress, but he also states uh, quite art, uh, uh, articulately that uh, nobody wants bribes. Uh, and that's something that uh, John Q. Citizen doesn't want, certainly something I don't want. And frankly, it's something that most legislatures and representatives don't want. So he advocates that we should really take a look at this and try to get some proposals in front of Congress and uh, work towards uh, revising things going forward. Great. So um, now we're going to turn our attention to um, a couple things from SCCE. Um, when we have our annual conference, uh, Adam Turtletob uh, takes the opportunity where all of these ethics and compliance um, leaders are gathered to do some short little interviews. And uh, this week, Adam is uh, featuring an interview he did with Andy Hinton, who's uh, working at um, Google, and which is also part of Alphabet. And Andy has just been uh, really one of the um, fun educators uh, in the ethics and compliance space. He is uh, very approachable and down to earth, and he's always a good interview. So we've uh, shared this in the show notes, and uh, we feel you should take a look at it. And uh, just again, to talk about Andy for a second, the reason why I was up here in San Francisco this week is uh, Becca, the Bay Area Ethics and Compliance Association, had their uh, annual uh, holiday party. And it's um, <clears throat> part education and part, um, you know, celebrating the Hollywood chair, holiday chair. So they had a CCO panel that was um, chaired by Len Shen at Visa. And on the panel were uh, Andy Hinton from Google, Emin Thoyer, who's the CCO of LinkedIn, and April Oliver, who's VP of Ethics and Integrity at Salesforce. So um, it was a real uh, far-reaching discussion about things that they've noticed here in Silicon Valley. And then really they ran the gamut from offering um, ideas on how uh, junior ethics and compliance people can uh, get themselves uh, noticed and uh, to, you know, uh, be more effective within their companies and grow. And they also shared a lot of their different um, war stories from being in the trenches. So uh, thanks to Becca for ho hosting this event. And um, next thing we have uh, SC 
SeaWise is uh, the top 10 ways to get involved with SCCE. And um, I hope those of you who are looking forward to participating in next fall's conference uh, submitted your deadlines, uh, your uh, topics by deadline. They were due on November 30th. So I know I got mine in. Did you get yours in, Tom? Uh, I submitted 10 this year. Okay. So uh, 10, is that is that normal for you or, or is that a little bit less than normal? No, it's uh, a little bit more, but I decided not to take any chances. So uh, I partnered up with uh, 10 different people and we submitted uh, 10 different uh, proposals and uh, hopefully one or more will be accepted. All right. Well, I, I, I'm, I've only at 30% of your output. I have three in, but uh, I figure that'll do good. Anything else that um, this is a great short list on 10 ways to get involved with SCCE. Anything that you'd particularly like to talk about? Well, you know, Jay, you, you've talked a lot about your experiences at the conferences, your, both your speaking experiences, your experiences on the pre-conference uh, uh, um, uh, events where we do um, mentoring and um, networking. And you've also talked about the volunteer work you do usually on the Saturday before. So I think uh, those things that are covered in this, uh, but uh, I want to speak about a couple of other things or several other things that both Christy Grant Hart and Roy talked about, which are how, how you can share content, uh, you can refer colleagues, um, you can certainly get certified, but on your sharing of content, you can share on, on LinkedIn, you can share in groups, you can share on Twitter, you can uh, do... Uh, reviews of uh, SCCE books and materials that are published on uh, Amazon and other uh, review-based websites. You can provide feedback to SCCE sessions that you might attend. You can uh, support the vendor relationships, and you can volunteer for leadership. So really within the whole panoply of uh, personalities of uh, SCCE members, there's there's a lot for everyone. If you're uh, kind of an introvert and really don't want to speak, there's places for you to write. If uh, you don't feel like you have anything independent to say, first of all, I would say you're wrong. But even if you feel that way, there are ways to share content. Uh, there are ways to support others who produce content. Um, you know, you can you can retweet retweet Roy's stuff. You can retweet the article that we're talking about because we're going to give the link in the show notes. Uh, you can read that article and see how you might work. It's the largest compliance and ethics organization in the world. And there's really a place for, for every compliance practitioner uh, to, to get involved. And your involvement will make the organization stronger, more well-rounded, and give you the opportunity to be a part of not only uh, the biggest organization, but also part of, of help help us move forward into the 2020s. God, I can't believe I'm saying that. And really beyond. So um, uh, I was really gratified that uh, certainly they talked about the experiences at the conference and, and you've really shared over the years your experiences there, but there are lots of other ways in addition to simply at the conferences. So I hope people will take a look at it. I hope they will uh, consider getting involved. It's a, a great organization. Jay and I are both uh, obviously big believers in it uh, and it's work for the profession. So, uh, Jay, we had um, two, three, actually three more whistleblower awards over the last week. We're now over $175 million paid out by the SEC Office of Whistleblower to 49 whistleblowers. We had a uh, $4.1 million award to an anonymous 
person, a former company insider, insider who alerted the, the agency to an unnamed company's widespread uh, fraud and corruption. So, uh, although I can't, uh, we don't know the name of the company, nor we know the, nor do we know the name of the whistleblower. Uh, I think it's significant that the SEC specifically highlighted the insider status, meaning this was senior management, general counsel, CFO, CCO, somebody who knew something was going on and wasn't able to stop it. Um, the second one was two whistleblowers split $8 million each to help uh, the SEC also bring in uh, successful enforcement action. Once again, um, names of the whistleblowers and the company were redacted. Uh, it was a 20-page order um, that uh, uh, talked about the um, information provided. So lots of um, whistleblower awards. Uh, the um, $16 million was the largest in 2017 to date. But once again, over $175 million now uh, to 49 whistleblowers. So that's uh, whistleblower uh, office and program has been a huge success for the Securities and Exchange Commission. I certainly expect it will move forward uh, uh, into 2018. Well, we've got uh, – we were talking before we went on air that – Houston already had some snowfall, so it's got to be the holiday season there. And the fires have been raging all around uh, Southern California. And uh, typically in the wintertime, we have these uh, very powerful Santa Ana winds. And, uh, you know, your, your tailpipe could be dragging on the freeway and it could set off a spark. And uh, this is uh, what Southern California has been dealing with. So it appears that... Uh, None of us have really been spared this year. Uh, in the Southwest, you've had the floods and we've had the fires. But um, just remember, there is no global warning. But on behalf of my colleague, Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for spending some time with us for this week in the SCPA uh, for the uh, week-ending uh, December 8th, 2017. This has been episode 79. Thanks a lot and have a great weekend. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you've listened to this episode on iTunes, we would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings and also help get the word out about the only weekly podcast, all things FCPA compliance related. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. Thanks again for listening to this week's Fire and Ice edition. I hope you will join us next week for another episode of This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.